This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So we're going to be talking about our nine to five. We're going to be talking about our jobs today. And this is going to be the first of four weeks where we'll be looking at the whole area of work. Love it or hate it, we all have work in our lives. We all have to do some kind of work in our lives. So it's an important subject. Um, I found a statistic where we spend approximately about a third of our lives in paid work. Okay. Um, there are other forms of work which can be included in this as well. So maybe you're at home and you're uh, raising children, or maybe you're at school, maybe you're a student, or maybe you're doing some kind of voluntary work. That's all included when we're talking about work in this context. And this is going to be the first of four weeks when we're looking, about, looking at work and everything involved with work. Our working lives, um, they're hard to com- compartmentalise, aren't they? So what I find with my life, my work, what happens in my work, whether it's good or bad, or whether it's going well or it's not going well, that goes on to impact the rest of my life. Similarly, in terms of the rest of my life, if that's going well, if that's not going well, that can then go on and impact how I perform in my work. So it's hard to compartmentalise one affects the other. And because of this, rightly or wrongly, work can dominate our conversations, or, and it can dominate our paradise as well. So work is an important part of our life. Um, for me, I just thought I'd give you a brief sort of lowdown on what I do for a job and what I have done for a job because I've been making reference to it during the talk. So um, I had um, education, I went to Standard Comprehensive and then I went to Bristol for university where I did a business studies degree. After that, I went into the financial services for a brief time. I gave that up and I did um, some volunteering for my church in Bristol. After that, didn't quite know what to do, so I went into local government, did some administration, went into a telecoms company and did some customer services before doing a PGCE. And now I've been teaching for about eight years now. I teach in a primary school up in Chicksbury. When I was doing this talk, I kept coming back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine um, when I was a couple of years into my teaching career. Now, as I've said, I wanted, when I was at university, I did business studies and on completion of business school, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go into financial services and I wanted to work for one of the big four. There are four companies which I thought I want to work for one of them. There's one in particular which I thought it would be great to work for them. That was my aim, that was my dream when I was a business studies student. My friend, on the other hand, I don't quite know what he did for um, a degree, but he went to Tanzania after university and he started doing some teaching in Tanzania. When he came back, one of the things he wanted to do was to go into teaching. He made a few different decisions and he ended up going into financial services and he actually ended up working for the company in the role I was going to apply for myself. So we kind of did like a role reversal type of thing. And the conversation went, he started it and he goes, Stan, you know, you're so lucky. You're so lucky to be doing a job where you genuinely help people, where you make a difference in people's lives, where you feel so fulfilled. It must be great just to be a teacher. 
And I, was kind of, I listened to him, and I kind of carried on the conversation. I tried to work it through and tried to um, let him know it's not all it's crapped up to be. But actually, I was, feeling, I was feeling overworked, and if you're a teacher, you kind of know this. I was feeling overworked, I was feeling underpaid, I was feeling underappreciated. I was feeling like I wasn't really doing anyone a favours by being a teacher, least of all the children in my class. And on the flip side, I was looking at him, and I didn't say this out loud, but I was looking at him, and obviously it was a job I was going to apply for. I was thinking, mate, look at, look at those business trips you go abroad on. Right? That seems quite glamorous. I was thinking, look at your Christmas bonus. Look at your salary. I knew what he was earning because I wanted the job. Um, look at your salary. Imagine what you could do with your life if you had that salary. We were both thinking the other pe person is living the dream and both quite fed up with our lot. Okay, so we're both thinking the grass must be greener if I go over there. Um, but we can all engage in this type of thinking or similar thinking to some degree or the other. Okay, so have you ever asked yourself the question, if I could go back and do it all again, what would you be? What would I be if I could do it all again? If I could make some different decisions, do a different course, make some different decisions, what could I be? Or are you envious of people, some people don't have to work for lots of different reasons, but are you envious of people who do not have to work? Okay, because work for you is just a little bit of a, a necessary evil. Are you counting the days down until you retire? Yet, you're still in your 20s or your 30s, you've still got a, a lot of counting to do. Are you a bit bored? thinking, I've done this job for too long, I'm just a bit bored, perhaps you feel your job is mundane, a little bit pointless, I mean, who cares about your work anyway? Who cares about your work anyway? Does it make a difference to anyone at all? Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the constant pressure you're under, or underappreciated, not paid enough for what you do. I was talking to someone the other day, and they just said, I'm simply tired. I'm tired of going to bed, getting up the next day, and going to work, simply tired. Or, have you ever been asked this question, do you live to work, or do you work to live? Do you live to work or do you work to live? So if you're a live-to-work person, you pour the best bits of yourself, all your energy, into your nine-to-five or your eight-to-six or whatever working schedule you have, and all your energy goes into it, and actually you only stop so that you can come out, refuel, and go back in again to your work. Or maybe you're a work-to-live person, so you go to work, you earn a crust, and then you come out and you flourish in the world in different ways, pour yourself out into other ways in the world. So if you're a fan of suits, you may you know Harvey Specter with a typical Harvey Specter quote. Now, I remember watching one episode, and they were talking about work, um, and they were saying... Um, and he was saying, well, he was always working and someone was challenging him that he's always working. And his response was, well, of course I'm working. What else is there? What else is there apart from work? And maybe you know people like this where everything about their life is work. Um, maybe you are that person to some degree. Or maybe you have a boss who wishes you were that person. Uh, but it can be a temptation to fall into, actually. And it's one to some degree I've fallen into as well. Because when you're at work, you have a real and tangible sense that you, are, that you are producing, that you are performing, and that you are proving yourself. So work can offer us that. Or perhaps you embrace the work-to-live attitude. Okay, so you earn your money, and then you pour yourself into other pursuits. So you pour yourself into your, you know, wholesome pursuits, so your family, your friends, church community, or whatever it may be. And this can seem like the right answer, doesn't it? This seems like this should be the right answer. However... Like we said before, you know, that statistic, about a third of our life is spent in work. So is that one third simply there to support the rest of it? 
Is that the point of the one third, to support the rest of it? Okay. Um, in this sermon series, this is going to be one of four, but we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about our working lives and asking, it, has the Bible got to say something about this? We'll be looking at the Bible, we'll be looking at Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, as well as other, um, other verses around. Um, a few weeks ago, I spoke on the 3 to 1 course, and I was talking about Genesis, and I was saying it's not a scientific manual, but what it does, it communicates truth, which is deeper than mere mechanics. And as an adult, I have found that as I've got to grips with Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in particular, it's, it's like a pair of glasses. It's like a lenses by which I can view the issues in my life and in other people's lives around me. Things become clearer when I view them through the lens of Genesis. Okay. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into the scripture. Okay. So Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has uh, saved us, Lord God. And uh, we thank you for that, and we say we love you, Lord. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scripture, Lord. We thank you that it is is God-breathed. You say it's God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness, Lord. So as we dig into your word, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be here speaking to us, Lord and that we will learn much about what you have to say about work. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so Genesis. I'm going to read the first part of the uh, the creation story in Genesis. And for the sake of time, I'll be summarising parts of this and moving on to some latter parts. So, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made a vault and separated the water under the vault and the water above it. And it was so. And he called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And the next days include uh, making dry ground and vegetation, the sun, moon and stars, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, living creatures and of all kinds. And then I'm going to pick up the account at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the design of work. And Genesis 1 starts with some excellent news. So the excellent news is God. God is the excellent news in himself, who he is. In the beginning, we have the God who creates the heavens and the earth. With God, we have the Spirit. He is hovering over the waters. We also have the Word, which in John 1 reveals to be Jesus. Okay, so it's hinted in Genesis 1, but in John 1, it says it explicitly. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made 
Nothing was made which has been made. Okay, so the word is Jesus, and Jesus the Father and the Spirit all existed in loving community. Okay, before the world was created, and that's why we can say God is love. I was in a RE lesson the other day, and I was talking about creation. I was talking about you know God, um, God created. He existed before creation, and He created the world. And I posed the question to my kids. I said, you know, why did God create the world? And one of the responses was, well, He was lonely. He was lonely. And um, I had to correct the boy. I mean, he made a good comment. Okay, uh, I had to correct the boy. He said, well, he wasn't lonely. Because if he was lonely, if he was a lonely single person God, he'd be creating out of a need because there's no one else. We couldn't say that he is love because actually he's got no one to love in that space. But we can say that God is love because there's the Father, Spirit and the Son. And he was completely satisfied in and of himself before creation. So he actually creates out of the overflow of his love rather than out of need. So God uh, is love and God created out of love. Other good news is that God loves creation, especially humankind. So we see in the Genesis account we have on day one, God creates and he says, it is good. Day two, God creates, says, it is good. Day three, day four, day five, he creates, he says, it is good. On day six, when he creates mankind, he says, and behold, it was very good. And there is another account of creation. It's actually found in Proverbs, um, and it's written in the first person where the speaker is called Wisdom, Wisdom with a capital W. Um, Wisdom is as old as God, is beside God from all time, is the craftsman in creation, and we know who wisdom is, don't we? Wisdom is Jesus, is the word. And I'm going to read Proverbs 8 from 27 to 31. So it says, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the great deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly by his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, that's the spirit, rejoicing in the whole world, and get this, and delighting in the human race. So why is this good news? Well, there's always been different creation stories which have competed with the biblical creation story. In modern times, there's a, there's a creation story uh, which competes with our biblical creation story, and the modern creation story says, well, actually, there's no need for a God. There is no God, there is no need for a God. This world came about without the need of a designer or a creator, okay? And people believe this without even question. Um, but, you know, what it says, it actually kind of says, you know, this world we live in, are, you know, the complexities of our bodies and our consciousness and the way we relate to each other, it's saying that actually this came down purely by time and chance. The late Stephen Hawkins, he, he grappled with this and he actually is quoted as saying this, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun except by an act of God who intended to create human beings. And it's the whole intent thing which I want to pick up on. Um, the good news is that we live in a deliberately planned and good world created by a good and loving God. And the good news is that this continues into the whole area of our working lives. Okay? So in the beginning, there was work, and God was doing that work. In the beginning, God was doing the work, and we can clearly see through the scriptures that God 
loved the work he was doing and God loved the outcome of his work as well. Um, and it was clearly a delight for him. Okay? He loves his creation and he cares for it. He goes on caring for creation. So I look at the Sermon on the Mount. We have Jesus. He's talking about the Father. He says, look at the birds in the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. So he goes on caring for his creation. Other good news is that God creates and cares for creation and he commissions mankind to do likewise. So in Genesis 1, we've already read it. God blesses them and says to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. And Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and to work it and take care of it. Okay, so man was put in the garden of Eden and we can see that work is actually part of paradise. So Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, which was paradise. Before the fall, before they got taken out of the Garden of Eden, they were in paradise. They had everything they could want in paradise. They had all the food they can eat, um, didn't need clothes, you know, they, they had everything they could need. They had an abundance of everything, yet there was still work for them to do in paradise. And it's also part of a design our design. God has put it into our DNA. So you may not feel like this on a Monday morning or even after a full week of work, but actually you want to work. You do want to work. In form, some form or another, you want to work. My mum said before she, um, as she retired, she, there's a little gap. She does fostering now. There's a little gap between retiring and fostering. And we were talking to her about doing the fostering. Her job was quite stressful. And we'd say to her, you know, you sure you don't just want to take it easy for a while? You know, you can go around, have coffee mornings, you can go and see your kids, you can get involved in this, that and the other. And her response was, she thought she'd just get a bit bored. She thought she'd get a bit bored. She wanted to do something. She wanted to get out there and do something. And we still have our DIY projects. We do work, which we're not paid to do. We do work sometimes just for the sheer love of doing that work. So I have friends who do DIY projects. They could pay someone else to do it. We've got enough money to pay someone else to do it, but they just want to do that kind of work. They don't get paid for it. I have other friends who, do, um, who write music. Again, it's not their day job, but they just love the creative process. They love the outcome. They want to work. Um, other people who are artists, they love the, you know, they might not get paid for it, but they love the process. They love the outcome. They love to work. As a teacher, I get six weeks off. And I know you're all very jealous of me. I don't have kids to keep me busy. I don't have a house which I have to do up. So I have six weeks off, okay? Um, and what I find is actually, you know, I, I sign up for some holidays. Um, I, I rest up and I feel like a normal human being again. But, you know, after I've done my holidays, after I've caught up with people, after I've done some leisure and sat around in the park and done a few other things, I just get to a point where... I've had enough of leisure and I want to do stuff. So I end up volunteering, I end up signing up for a preach because I want to do things. I don't necessarily want to go back to my teaching for six weeks, but I still want to do some form of work in some other form. Okay? Without work, because it's in our DNA, without work, we're a bit like a fish out of water. It's not natural, necessary not to work. Okay. So, dignity of work. Work has a dignifying effect on us because it is something God does, 
has done and does and something we are to do in his place. So we've already read the Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, Genesis 2, but what we can see is we can see that Adam and Eve, they are clearly set apart from the rest of creation and given specific purpose to do. So they are to rule and subdue, to care and tend, to name the animals and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We don't see that with the rest of creation. So the birds and the animals and the plants, they are just to be and to do what they do. They're not set apart with specific purpose like man has, okay? Um, you have heard the phrase, it's not what you do, it's the way you do it. It's not what you do, it's the way you do it. Now that phrase can be uh, applied to many different things, but people generally uh, apply it to work, okay? You don't necessarily hear a brain surgeon say that, a brain surgeon says, it's not what I do, it's just the way I do it. Because if he doesn't do his job properly, he's going to face some legal implications. We tend to apply it to people who, who might be doing sort of low-paid manual work, and we, we, we say to them, you know, it's not what you do, it's the way you can do it. But the implication of this is that some work is of less value than other work. By saying that, you kind of imply that some work is of less value. And you can make certain judgments about people based on the work they can do. Okay, so I know this kind of full world. For 18 months, like I said, um, I was working in a call centre. It was a low-paid service job. And I remember being on the phone to a man one day. Um, he'd actually come through to the wrong department. He'd pressed the wrong button and come through to the wrong department. So that was one problem in the first place. Uh, but he was pushing some, for some money. Off. He wanted an upgrade, and he was pushing for some money off. And he kept come through to hands at fault. So I literally didn't have the ability or the clearance to be able to give him what he wanted. He did not believe me and he just kept on pushing for it and pushing him for it. He became aggressive in the end and he ended up saying things like this. Well, look at you. Look at what you've done with your life. Look at what you're doing for a job. And I couldn't believe that someone was talking to me like this. I'm sure he wouldn't say it to my face, but that he thought you know, he could say that to me. And my sister, she recently had the same experience. So my sister works in digital marketing, sort of at a leadership level. Uh, and there's a man there who's particularly got it in for my sister, uh, just making her life a misery in a bit. Now, our dad is a postman, and he's been doing that for the last 15 years. And he'll probably do that till he retires. And one of the things he said, I think they're in some kind of meeting or some kind of get-together, I can't remember what. Um, but he said, of my, he, said to, he said to everyone, do you know what Katie's dad does for a living? And the intention was there to mock. It was there to mock her based on the assumption that a physical job, a physical job like my dad's, is less dignified than their job. Okay? And as Christians, we cannot think like this. We cannot have that thinking come into our thinking. Okay? Um, because God did physical and mental work. So in Genesis, we see God, and he's a gardener in Genesis. And Jesus, as we know, he left the glory of heaven. He came down, he put on the human flesh. And before he went into, did his ministry, he was a carpenter with his dad. So he knows what it's like to do a physical, hard job um, all day. In Psalm 64, we have a spirit of God convicting sin and a gardener. And then Adam is given both physical jobs, tending the garden, and mental jobs, because he's to name the animals. So he's going to study and name the animals. So he has both physical and mental jobs. So we can see that all work, regardless of the type, regardless of the status that our culture attaches to it, or the pay, all work has equal dignity 
in God's eyes. Okay. So um, Tim Keller, um, his book, Every Good Endeavour, fantastic, and I got um, quite a few of the examples for the sermon from his book, but he uses a real-life example of uh, a doorman in Manhattan. His name is Mike. He came over from Croatia, and he's been a doorman for about 20 years, and he's now in his 60s. And Tim Keller says he is clearly distinctive in his attitude to his work. He writes, when asked what makes him drop, what he's doing, and get to the curbing time to unload a resident's car after a weekend away, he replies, that's my job. Or they needed help. Why does he remember the name of every child? Because they live here. At one point, the question is asked, but why do you work so hard at every part of this job? He replied, I don't know. It's just what I need to be able to look at myself in the mirror in the morning. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't try my best every day. He appears to work out of gratefulness of the job and for his life. And then Keller continues. He says, most people might serve are professionals or business people who are probably glad that they are not to be a doorman. Some might even find the work demeaning if they had to go and do it themselves. But Mike's attitude shows that he recognises the inherent dignity of the work he is doing, and in this, he brings out its goodness and its worth. I know, um, from my own perspective, there's been jobs um, which I have been doing where I haven't had the same attitude as Mike's. Okay. But um, all work is, has a dignifying effect, and one way is that we can actually see how our work is continuing on God's work. So if we look back at Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But it also says, yet the earth was formless and empty. So God, after day one of creation, still had plenty to do. Then Albert Waters, he's a professor of religion and theology, and he writes in a book, uh, Creation Regained, he says this, the earth had been the earth had been completely unformed and empty. In the six-day process of development, God had filled it and formed it, but not completely. People must now carry on the development by being fruitful. They fill it even more. By subduing it, they must form it even more. As God's representatives, we carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill it with its own kind, and they will form the earth for its own kind. From now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. So one way we image God as his beloved um, creations with regard is to carry on his pattern on work. Now, I'm going to give you some homework. Okay, so this is probably about the fifth time I've spoken. I haven't sent you any homework, so you're going to get some homework from me. Now, you don't have to write anything down. You don't have to hand anything in. Um, so that means there'll be no house points if you hand it in early. But um, your, your job is going to think and think about your work and think about how your specific work, the work you're doing now, the job you find yourself in now, how does your work carry on God's pattern of creation? How does it do it? And I'm going to give you a few examples um, just to get you going in the first place. So in Genesis, we, what we see God doing is he orders and fine-tunes the cosmos to bring about life. That's his work. So whenever we bring order out of chaos, we are being godlike. So my job in teaching, um, I bring order out of chaos, quite literally sometimes. So you put 30 kids in a class, it is chaos. And my job is to order that class and that classroom so that... Um, 
learning can have its life in my classroom. And that way I am continuing on God's uh, pattern of creation. God takes the formless land and he arranges it to produce something both helpful and beautiful. So farming, for example, takes physical material or soil and seed and produces food. Uh, music takes the physics of sound and it rearranges it into something beautiful and entertaining. Um, in this way, you are also being godlike. Um, God creates new entities and enables their working. So if you're in the in, in the business of creating new products and new technologies, um, this is you. Okay, so you might be in IT or you might be uh, a carpenter making new things. God created Adam and commissions him to tend the garden. So God, sorry, God tends the garden and commissions Adam to do likewise. So anything which um, cares for the physical creation, so gardening, cleaning, tree surgery, anything like that, anything which cares for God's creatures, like, uh, like being a vet, or anything which cares for uh, the pinnacle cre of creation, humankind, anything which cares for them, nurses, doctors, etc., you know, that is you. Uh, God creates and names things and asks Adam to name the animals. So this is a mental job, so Adam would have had to study the animals, research the animals, know the animals, know what they do, classify them, and then name them. So anything research-related, uh, or maybe you're at school, university, developing your own mental capabilities and stretching your knowledge, this is you. And we are also told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Now, God wants uh, civilization. He wants society in the earth. Um, remember, man is created um, distinct from the rest of creation, so he wants society in the world. So if you do anything which develops society, such as marriage counselling or entertainment, um, no, that's you. If you keep society safe, um, you're involved in the forces or in defence in some way, in the police, again, that is you. Okay, so that's a list. It's not, um, not a comprehensive list, but it should hopefully help you connect your work with God's work. And I hope it does so. Something for you to think about over the um, rest of the weekend. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about Christ's work now and your work. So each week at God First, we, we take communion. Okay, and this is for us to remember Christ's work on the cross. So we take the bread, and by taking the bread, we, we recognise, we remember that Christ uh, bore our sins in his body. He took on the sins of the whole world and bore them in his body. And by taking the wine, drinking of the wine, we remember his shed blood. Um, that his shed blood, it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It says it cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. All the things that we have done, all the things which have been done to us, it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we take communion to remember, to look back, and to remember that it's his work and not our work which has secured our salvation. That our forgiveness for sins, our right standing with God, the access we have to God, it is his work and not our work which has secured this for us. In Ephesians 2, it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is, this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Titus 3, 4, it says, But when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified but freely by his grace, by the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And in verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
This is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this can also go on to shape our view of work being God's work even further. Okay, so first of all, through work, and I kind of um, sort of alluded to it in some of my earlier comments, but we can try and earn a salvation of our own, some kind of salvation of our own through our work. So we can look for fulfillment through our work. We can look for success leading to feelings of self-worth and self-esteem through our work. Um, we can feel a security if we know that we are achieving our potential and being all we can be, that can be a kind of security for us as well. Yet, it's a, it's a fragile security because actually you need to strive to maintain that. You need to be constantly striving to stay in that place of achieving your potential, of being all you can be. Yet the gospel of Christ frees us completely for this because in Christ, in Christ we are called out, we are chosen, we are loved, he has chosen to pour his Holy Spirit out upon us, and we are raised up with Christ Jesus and seated in heavenly places with him. Okay? So because of this, we do not need to find any significance in our working lives, any significance for ourselves in our working lives. We don't have to achieve, achieve, achieve to get some self-worth, to get um, some good feelings of satisfaction, because we have that in Christ anyway. We have that in Christ. We don't have to go to work to try and find it ourselves through our work. We have it already in Christ. Okay? Um, salvation as a gift. Salvation is a gift. We haven't worked for us, but this can also do away with any sort of secular and sacred divide. So secular, sacred divide. When I talk about um, sacred work, we might be referring, we might think, well, the ministry is sacred work, missions work, that is sacred work, and then everything else. That is secular work. Okay, and salvation as a gift does away with this. We can consciously or subconsciously think um, that maybe if I'm doing ministry, if I'm doing missions work, um, or something closely related to that, we can subconsciously think that maybe God is more pleased with this. Maybe this work is, you know, if I want to get really, really serious with God, this is what I need to be doing. Okay, and we can have the wrong ideas about this. We can sometimes think that it's, you know, people who are called to ministry or missions, it, it's, it's for those special saints, or it's for the ones who are anointed, or it's for the ones who, whom God has got their hand on. Okay? And this, this is right, actually, and I, you know, I'm all for this, and I don't want to do away with that. But we can kind of think that you know, if we're not doing that kind of work, or if we're doing a secular job, you know, that we, we aren't those chosen saints. We're not you know, the anointed ones, that God hasn't necessarily got our his hand on our life. But this is wrong thinking. This is wrong thinking because, as I have said, all work, all work, regardless of what it is, is important to God. All work is God's work. Okay? So um, we, we celebrate people who might be called to ministry and other things, but we don't necessarily um, celebrate people who are called into other types of jobs. We don't really talk about that much. It doesn't kind of get any airtime. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the uh, the Corinthian church, and he says this, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, I'm going to read it twice, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So in doing this, Paul is saying that when you become a Christian, or you might already be Christian, there is no need to change 
your circumstances in order to please God. So if you're in charity work, continue doing charity work. If you're in finance or retail, medicine, construction, and so on, stay there. You do not have to make changes in order to please God. What he is saying is that whatever situation you find yourselves in, it's your assignment from God and your calling from God. So the work you find yourself in at the moment, the job you're doing nine to five, um, or whatever working schedule we have, that is your assignment from God and your calling from God. So teaching, for example, that's my assignment from God. For however long I do it, that is my assignment from God. That's my calling from God. When I was at Orange, it was a job that um, I knew I wouldn't do for a long time. I did it for 18 months in the end, but whilst I was there, whilst I was there, that was my assignment from God. That was my calling from God at the time. And we should feel the weight of that. We should feel the weight of that in a good way. In a good way. God is affirming what you are doing in the present. God knows what work situation you are in and God has assigned that to you. Okay, so now now that we have established that God has called you and assigned you to your present work, that you do not need to prove yourself to anyone or to God um, in your work, how should we go about doing this work? How should we go about doing this work? Well, just as God gives the church gifts in evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers to edify, build up the church and to help the church realise its potential because God loves the church, God also loves the world. And so God gives gifts to the world to edify, realise and build up the potential of the world. Okay, so this is important when seeking a career, and Tim Keller is really good. He says, when seeking a career or a changing career, or even a promotion or something like that, he says, don't seek fulfillment, status, or money. Yeah, so I alluded to it in my initial conversation with my friend where one of us was going for fulfillment, another us, me, was looking at the status and the money. He says, don't look for those things. He says, instead, ask yourself this question. How can I use my abilities, my experiences, my motivations and opportunities to be of greatest service to others and the world? Now, this might seem a little bit counterintuitive because surely if I'm fulfilled in my work, Surely if I'm fulfilled in my work, you know, that would make me a better person at work. You know, people would go on me better if I'm fulfilled at work. And it would make my, the rest of my life around, because I'm fulfilled at work. And surely that's not a bad thing to go over. Similarly with money, if, if I got a, a pay rise or some, you know, or a better salary, imagine what I could do with that. It's not necessarily a bad thing to look for those things. But he is saying, actually, don't seek those things, okay? So in my job, I can focus on my next pay rise, and it can be more, become subtly more about the next thing, the next pay rise, or the next job, or whatever, to the neglect of my actual job. So I could neglect, to some extent, my teaching, because I'm after a promotion, or I'm after a few other things, okay? My mum was always quite good with this, so whenever I'd go back and sort of have a little moan about um, my job, um, my mum would say, um, just focus on the children. Just focus on the children. And, you know, just that simple statement, um, that there's a lot in that. Because there's been times where I've been focusing on trying to get some more money out of my school for all the effort I've put in, and I've actually missed out on a pay rise. Uh, there was one time recently, and I just thought, what would it like, what would I want to be like in this school if I was going to be paid the same amount 
and it was like, well, I'd like to be a good teacher. I'd like the kids to love being in my class. Okay, so I have actually focused on that for a year. And um, what I found is that actually, what happened this time around, I went up to my, my appraisal. I had everything ticked off and crossed that, but I knew beforehand that they were going to give me the pay rise. I didn't have to fight for it because what I did focus on, I focused on the children you know, for a good year and that made the difference. So it seems counterintuitive, but we need to seek. We need to seek. We need to think about the work. The work itself is important because God has assigned it to you and called it to you. Okay, just finishing up. So the two greatest commandments are, two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbour. Yeah, we know this, and we can sometimes think that actually, with our working lives, it's quite hard to fit loving God and loving our neighbour in amongst our working lives, isn't it? Okay, so I can kind of think, well, actually, I can get up in the morning and do some loving God there, and you know, I've got a couple of nights free this week, so maybe I could go and see someone who needs to see someone. I could love my neighbour in that way, but actually, the way to work God is to be competent in our work. Be competent in our work. Um, all work is a way to love the God who has freely saved us. All work is a way to love the God who has freely saved us. And there may be no better way to love our neighbour than to be increasingly competent at our work. So we know how frustrating it is to work with someone and they, they're not competent. I've been not competent in my work before, but um, I wanted to get better. But when you work with someone who, who's not that good and they don't want to get better, they're a bit of a burden they, you know, you need to carry them. On, on the other hand, I've worked with some very, very competent people. I worked with someone who was very competent last year. Um, she made me a better teacher, and I could see the impact that she had in the school. And I thank God for her. You know, I thank God for her. She wasn't a Christian, but I thank God for uh, the gift she was to, to that school. Okay, but she was a blessing. She was the blessing in that school. And the way you can be um, a blessing in your school is to seek to be very good at your job. Seek competence in your work. And I believe that this principle will sustain your motivation, whatever role you find yourself in. So I'm going to summarise. In summary, what we can see that is there is a design for work. So God himself worked. Work was a pleasure for him and he was pleased with the outcome. And he designs humans, the pinnacle of his creation, to also work. There is dignity in work. So God sets humanity apart and gives them specific work to do. This has a dignifying effect because we are doing what God does and continue his work in cultivating and caring for the, word, for the world. Number three, Christ's work on the cross frees us from seeking a type of salvation of our own through our work. At the same time, it frees us from any secular sacred divide as no amount of work or religious works can earn our salvation. And lastly, resting in the assurance that we have nothing to prove and that we are called to the circumstances we are in, we can seek to love God and our neighbour by becoming increasingly competent in the work that we do. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.